I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to season two of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did. This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Hey guys, we have talked a lot about how we use the MedBridge PCS prep course to develop our study plan and as an awesome supplemental resource for the PCS exam. Not only are there copious amounts of videos, but they also include practice exams, recommended readings, and other resources to add to your toolbox. To celebrate Physical Therapy Month, MedBridge is running a special on their premium subscription for just $225 if you use the code PTM pushing peds. You can also click on the link in the episode notes. These subscriptions are good for one year of content and gives you premium access, including their PCS prep content. Even if you are not studying for the PCS, you can still use this discount code for continuing education credits. Share it with your colleagues and other friends who may be studying for their other specialty exams. Hurry, this special priced PT month promotion ends on October 31st. Let's start with case number 10, Down syndrome. The case study begins by reviewing a lot of the same information we just went through in the clinical summary. Make sure you listen to that episode first and then come back here for review. A family has recently moved into the area and has scheduled an appointment to initiate outpatient physical therapy services for a 15-month-old girl with Down syndrome. The child has received Individuals with Disability Education Improvement Act, Part C, or IDEA, Part C, early interventions in the past, and will continue those services in their new community. However, the family also wants to obtain additional physical therapy services at this time. The child began to roll over at six months, sit independently at 10 months, and belly crawl at 12 months. Currently, she is able to stand at a support if placed there, but is not yet pulling to stand. Her past medical history includes a moderate ventricular septal defect that was repaired through open heart surgery at four months of age. The surgery was a median sternotomy. She required supplemental oxygen by nasal cannula prior to the surgery, but has not required it since then. 
She has hypothyroidism and her current medications include thyroxine and ranitidine. She is the youngest child in a family with two older children, boy aged five years and a girl aged seven years. Her parents have recently divorced and her mother has full custody of all three children. Her father sees her one day per week and has her overnight every other weekend. Starting again with our physical therapy considerations, we want to improve the quality of motor control for achievement of motor milestones. That will depend on the age and milestones of each patient. But in this case, the child is working on pulling to stand. We would want to work through pulling to stand, standing, and independent ambulation with them. We also have a big role in caregiver education and teaching the family how to facilitate motor development at home. We also want to be monitoring lower extremity alignment and determine any orthotic needs. Interventions will also likely focus on family education and help with environmental setup. How can we create a conducive environment for the patient to encourage independent exploration and gross motor play? Through this, we can create opportunities for strengthening. In this case specifically, we want to create an environment that will encourage pulling to stand, getting those toys off the floor, helping the patient with independent standing, and then encouraging them to challenge their balance a bit with reaching outside their base of support and finally working towards ambulation. Like we reviewed from the clinical summary, it is important with this population to protect joints from extreme range of motion due to their hypotonia and ligament laxity. You always want to observe for any signs of atlantoaxial instability and observe any signs or symptoms of thyroid or cardiopulmonary issues. Hypothyroid issues might present as fatigue and poor endurance, muscle and joint aches, increased sensitivity to cold, decreased motivation, weight gain, dry skin, and constipation. Hyperthyroid issues may look like nervousness, weight loss, tachycardia, insomnia, increased appetite, heat intolerance, or the presence of a goiter. Many children with Down syndrome have associated heart issues, so also make sure you are looking at their medications. Common medications might be diuretics, ACE inhibitors, or didoxin. Signs and symptoms of allantoaxial instability include easy fatigability, difficulty walking, abnormal gait or a change in gait, neck pain or torticollis, limited neck mobility, change in hand function, new onset of urinary incontinence, increase in incoordination or clumsiness, sensory impairments, and spasticity and hyperreflexia. If you see any of these signs of atlantoaxial instability, immediate referral is indicated. Management of a young child with Down syndrome requires a team approach. The overall goal of PT is to promote functional independence and gross motor skill acquisition. We also want to prevent secondary complications resulting from motor delays, hypotonia, and ligamentous laxity. Typical therapy interventions include strengthening and postural control activities through play. Orthotics for lower extremity alignment are common. There are many standardized developmental assessment tools available, but the gross motor function measure, the GMFM, really has the strongest research. It has great prognostic data, meaning it can help us predict future performance. The GMFM can also help us identify if a child is advanced, age appropriate, or delayed compared to the expectations for a child with Down syndrome. 
The Case Files book highlights the common interventions for persons with Down syndrome and dosing for these interventions. Dosing will come up a lot in your studying. Here, they discuss early intervention, birth to three, and suggest that parental involvement and their ability to implement daily activities are more important than the number of therapy sessions. We talked about when to initiate treadmill training, and the dosing for that is suggested at eight minutes per day, five days per week. Postural control is listed as an intervention with focus on refinement of postural synergies, but there is no data for dosage guidelines. Last, orthotics are listed. Standard of care has been to provide orthoses when the child begins to stand with support. Orthotics is another area where there's a lot of conflicting data and was definitely a challenge in our study preparation. This book gives foot orthotics or SMOs as a grade A evidence rating for children who are ambulatory and working on improving their gross motor skills and a grade C for children pulling to standing and standing. The grade C is related to orthotics assisting in earlier ambulation when implemented before the child is walking independently. So it isn't necessarily saying that they are bad for this population, but that there isn't great evidence to suggest that the child will walk sooner if we implement orthotics sooner. Now we're moving on to case number 27, joint hypermobility. While this case is not directly related to Down syndrome, as we saw in the last case, joint hypermobility is an impairment that you may encounter when treating kiddos with a diagnosis. Just be aware that this child in this case study does not have Down syndrome, just general joint hypermobility. A 12-year-old female presents to outpatient physical therapy with reports of increasing pain in multiple joints. Her family notes that she has had intermittent joint pain for at least four years. During the past six months, the pain has spread to multiple joints and has increased in frequency and intensity. She also reports increasing difficulty with physical activities, including walking for more than 10 minutes, and she needs to stop frequently due to pain. The patient has participated in recreational soccer in the past, However, she has stopped due to increasing knee pain with running. She reports that her pain is worse in the evening, particularly after an active day, and notes that painful areas include bilateral hips, knees, and ankles. She and her parents report symptoms of excessive fatigue at the end of the school day. She is often exhausted after school and wants to take a nap, which impacts the quality of her sleep at night. Her primary care physician ordered radiographs of her knees and the results were normal. The physician then referred the child to a pediatric rheumatologist. She was seen by the rheumatologist and diagnosed with hypermobility syndrome and referred to physical therapy for evaluation and treatment. Let's go over some physical therapy considerations for a child with joint hypermobility. A general physical therapy plan of care and goals may include increasing muscle strength and flexibility, promote independence with pain management techniques as long as they are cognitively able, facilitate independence with joint protection and activity modification, facilitate independence with and adherence to a home exercise program, improve postural alignment, increase core strength and stabilization, and maximize neuromotor control and function. You can also add into this section family and caregiver education if your patient is dependent on their caregivers. 
In this case, the child is relatively independent. Therapy interventions could include initiating a therapeutic exercise program, joint protection, including postural re-education and awareness to reduce stress on muscles and joints, limiting pain and fatigue, controlled stretching, core and extremity strengthening, and neuromuscular re-education. Some precautions to be aware of during physical therapy include monitoring for anxiety and minimizing the risk of joint subluxation and or dislocation during exercise. Complications that could interfere with physical therapy include increased pain and joint stress with intensive physical therapy, collagen deficiency leading to increased risk of injury, as well as abnormal response to exercise and position changes due to dysautonomia especially in this patient. Something else to consider could be if the child is cognitively delayed or behavioral, the risk of re-injury increases if they're not tolerant to bracing or to the additional precautions that are given. Let's go over some evidence-based recommendations based on this case study. A modified low-intensity approach to therapeutic intervention that progresses slowly and targets postural stability and endurance may decrease pain, increased strength, and improved function in individuals with joint hypermobility. This is grade B evidence. A proactive approach for joint protection, stabilization training, and body awareness may facilitate management of pain and fatigue symptoms and potentially minimize long-term musculoskeletal deficits. This is grade B evidence. To reduce long-term detrimental effects on the musculoskeletal system, joint protection should be incorporated into all aspects of exercise and physical activity. This is grade C evidence. Lastly, it is recommended that a home exercise program be continuous, progressive, and performed as part of a daily routine to achieve maximum benefit and prevent return to pre-intervention status. This is grade C evidence. Let's finish off by going over some clinical pearls for children with joint hypermobility. Low-intensity, slowly-progressing exercise programs should include core strengthening, facilitation of co-contraction for joint stability, and proprioceptive training with slow progression of exercise intensity. Joint hypermobility can be a complex chronic condition that requires ongoing intermittent management throughout childhood and adolescence. It is important to address the ability of the patient and family to play an active role in the management of the condition. Kinesiophobia is often present. Imaging may play a role in diagnostic or prognostic management, and frequency can vary depending on the current level of function and response to therapy. Last, pubertal maturation has been shown to lead to increased joint laxity in females. Many female adolescents experience an exacerbation in symptoms during this time. Increased pain at the end of an activity, such as soccer, may be typical for children and adolescents with joint hypermobility conditions. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time. And remember, you totally got it.